0: talking benefits 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 talking talking talk a little bit about benefits Yeah, benefits talking benefits
1: you are listening to talking benefits every month we cover the top stories in retirement and health care the latest benefits hot topics and whatever else the industry throws at us i'm justin held
0: i'm ann patterson i'm julie stick and i'm kelly colesrud now let's talk benefits We're taking a deep dive into open enrollment this month because it's right around the corner and despite the headaches that often accompany this season, it's what benefit pros want to know. So let's start at the beginning. What is open enrollment and why is it important? Open enrollment season, and some people jokingly call it open season. I've I'm not never sure. heard
2: that before. Have I'm not either? sure why that
0: is, but well, it must
2: be a thing in the we're
0: in Wisconsin.
2: That's true. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, for what is open enrollment? It's a finite period of time each year when benefit plan participants can sign up for their benefit plans. Workers have the option to enroll in benefits for the first time, or they can change their current plans or coverage amounts, or they could just drop coverage completely. Open enrollment can apply to several types of benefit plans and insurance, but usually the big focus of open enrollment is on health insurance or health benefit coverage. So if you're in a group health benefit plan, the eligible participants can sign up during the open enrollment period without having to provide proof of insurability, and that's a big advantage. If workers don't sign up for health insurance during open enrollment, They probably can't sign up for health insurance until the next open enrollment period unless they experience a qualifying event. Employers then typically can make a choice and either offer a passive enrollment system or an active enrollment system. And a passive enrollment one is one where employees or participants are just automatically re-enrolled each year without having to provide new information. Whereas, an active enrollment is one that requires a new form to be filled out and submitted every year during this open enrollment period.
1: So why is open enrollment so important? It involves a lot of money. Health coverage is expensive, and during just a few weeks each year, plan participants make decisions that affect the amount of money that is spent and how that money is spent. Nationwide, it certainly amounts to billions of dollars that are spent. These decisions affect a worker's health and well-being, but also the health and well-being of their loved ones. Uh, These decisions can also affect worker job satisfaction and how they feel about their employer for at least the upcoming calendar year.
2: For this particular episode on open enrollment, I talked to our HR department and yes, they all groaned when they heard open enrollment, but really we have an amazing HR team and making sure employees are making the best decisions possible during this time of year is super important to them. Um, So we asked them to share some of the most common questions that they receive from year to year during open enrollment and the podcast team is going to tackle those questions and how plan sponsors should be prepared to answer them. Our listeners might be getting similar questions to our our HR staff yeah, here at the foundation. They're for open
3: enrollment themselves. Yes, so.
2: open season. <laughs> now that we now that we know that's a thing. Question number one that HR gets all the time is, why do you need my social security number? And this also goes for a lot of different private information, like the date of birth for your kids, your spouse's info, etc.
3: It's true. I mean, I I totally understand why our coworkers are going to HR and asking about social security numbers, because the whole idea of handing out my social security number or my date of birth to anyone, including our HR department, it gives me some pause, right? Uh, We all have concerns about psych security, and those issues are being talked about. So it is a real concern. Mm
1: -hmm. And despite these actions, plans uh, sometimes need your social security number because, you know, insurance companies use it as a unique identifier for each person covered in a plan. Um, there are government requirements and uh, tax ramifications also exist that require a social security number, whether it be ACA reporting documents. And this is something that we have discussed here at work. So just tell your workers, this is why we need the number and just ensure them that their data is in good hands. So.
2: Okay. Question number two, why did my costs co-op this year?
0: That's a good question. And I know plan sponsors get that question routinely. Plan sponsors, obviously, follow closely what all the, the surveys that are done to report on what the average anticipated increase will be for the next year. They keep track of what's going on in their own group. And you as plan sponsors understand all of that, but trying to convey that to your participants in a concise manner that makes sense to them can be challenging. But of course, You can cite some of those surveys, for example, that the average for next year is anticipated to be a certain percentage level, and then if your quote or your amount that you'll be charging them is different, you can explain it by the other factors that are considered into that, your location and the costs of healthcare in your vicinity. Also your particular population and your group might have different costs because of their makeup and their characteristics.
2: Okay, so I'm going to add a part B to this, to question number two. If there is a premium increase, how can employers help employees weed through the health plan choices, in turn making the right financial decision for themselves and whoever is on the plan with them?
1: So, enrollment material should explain changes in offerings from the previous year, whether it be changes in plans, networks, uh, different coverage levels, and services offered. It's also important to spell out changes in what employees are being asked to pay. Your enrollment material should also explain the difference between types of plans, whether it's a PPO, HMO, uh, high-deductible health plans, etc. And it should offer a comparison showing the different levels of coverage and out-of-pocket expenses that employees could be expected to incur throughout the year.
3: Well, as an employer or plan sponsor, you can also give some tools to your employees to help them make some decisions. For example, if there are quality ratings available for providers in the network, that could be helpful to share with the employees. And also, you can give them a worksheet so they can do some math. What would be on that, just because
2: you know I love math. Everyone in this room knows that's why I went into communications. Um, so oh, what man. on that worksheet, what would it typically have or what would it be? smart to include.
3: Right. Well, there are some things for employees to consider when they're looking at their plans. For example, it might not be cost-effective for them to just simply choose the plan with the lowest premiums. I mean, that seems to be the obvious choice, but that isn't the smartest choice. So you can give your employees a worksheet so they can look at other things. For example, look at deductibles and co-pays and co-insurance so that they can, if they add that to They can figure out what their out-of-pocket spending maximums might be. They can figure out what their insurance premiums are going to be as well. So sometimes the out-of-pocket expenses may negate any savings that an employee might have if they pick the plan with the lowest premiums.
2: It's probably very difficult to truly predict, but do you have any tips on how you can encourage your employees to think ahead and and predict their out-of-pocket for the year?
0: Sure. I think you know they can kind of ask themselves a series of questions. Mm-hmm. First of all, are the services and treatments that they need or desire covered by the plan that, that they've signed up for or, or are considering? Sometimes chiropractic services or orthodontia or some specialty meds or even the doctor that they really know and love may not be in their network. Sure. So, If any of those things are not covered, you need to add that to how much they'll have to pay out of pocket. Also, workers need to ask themselves how much risk they can take on. Sometimes organizations offer a choice between a more traditional plan and a high deductible plan, and obviously with a very high deductible, the premium is going to be lower, but there's definitely risk and potential high out-of-pocket costs with that. So, Does the worker have enough money in an emergency fund to pay that whole deductible if they would have to encounter that? Also, you you just need to look around your home and consider the health of all your family members that are covered by the plan. Do you need more coverage because of a health condition or an anticipated health expense in the next year?
2: anything like a knee replacement surgery or your kid is getting braces. So those are all things to think about that we might not always identify with open enrollment season, but it's important to consider.
1: So overall, your plan participants should consider how much them and their family used medical services last year and what they paid. Uh, This could be an indicator of costs for the year going forward, and uh, it can be used to help Pick a different plan that is that would better suit your participants. Look at the plan's network. Is there doctors still covered? Are there quality ratings that are visible and can be reviewed? Also look at the plan's coverages. Are your people looking for specialist care, screenings, physical therapy benefits, mental health coverage, alternative health care options, chronic care options, preventative care, etc. And uh, also, are there any health account options available? Does the employer help fund them? Do they make contributions to them?
2: Well, that's perfect timing because question number three from HR is, what's the difference between an HSA and an FSA? And even if you don't offer both, It's important to know the difference in case their spouse offers a plan that includes one or the other just so that you can fully educate your employees on that decision.
3: Yes, and it's a good idea to give inquiring employees some bullet points on the similarities and differences between the two types of accounts in terms they can understand. Justin and I will give it a shot.
1: So starting off with health savings accounts, this is where you use pre-tax dollars to set aside money into an account to be used for any qualified medical expenses. Uh, This includes deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, prescriptions, some medical equipment, but not insurance premiums. And for flexible spending
3: accounts or FSAs, it's pretty much exactly the same.
1: So going back to HSAs, these dollars must be used in conjunction with a high deductible health plan. You can not also be covered by another non-HDHP plan. Now it's different for
3: FSAs. Uh, There is no HDHP requirement. They can be set up independently and they actually don't even have to be tied to any type of health plan.
1: Going back to HSAs, uh, if you plan to use the money for anything other than a qualified medical expense, the money will be taxed and subject to a 20% penalty.
3: For FSAs, you're just not allowed to use the money at all for any non-qualified expenses.
1: So for HSAs, the amount of money set aside annually is limited to a specific dollar amount.
3: And for FSAs, uh, also there's a limit
1: on how much money can be set aside, but it's a different limit. Looking at contributions for HSAs, employers and other parties can contribute money into the account. For
3: FSAs, uh, it's typically mostly employee contributions. Employers
1: can contribute, often they don't, uh, but no one else can contribute to that and looking at rollovers and HSAs, money rolls over annually if it is not used. Now this is one case where FSAs are very different. FSAs have what
3: we call the use it or lose it rule, where the money generally has to be used by the end of the year. Employers can allow a carryover of $500 into the next year and or the employer can give a two and a half month grace period into the next year to spend the money if they want. But note, neither the grace period nor the carryover is required, so employers don't
1: have to allow that. Jumping back to HSAs, when they are in an account, money can earn interest that will not be taxable. That is not the case with FSAs. Back to HSAs, the money can no longer be put aside once the worker is enrolled in Medicare or age 65 and above. There
3: is no rule like this
1: for FSAs. And finally, for HSAs, employees can be a little more relaxed in deciding how much money to set aside each year uh, because, of course, that unused money rolls over to the next year. Also, the HSA belongs to the individual, so it is portable if they change jobs. So, and this
3: is a case where FSAs are very different. Because of that use-it-or-lose-it rule, employees are encouraged to be careful when they estimate the amount of money that they think they're going to incur out of pocket and be reimbursed through the FSA because of the use-it-or-lose-it rule. And also, these accounts are not portable, so if an employee changes jobs, uh, they don't get to take that money with them. Mm
2: That was very helpful. And it definitely lent itself to one of my favorite things, which is a Venn diagram. So I'm making Julie and Justin draw this out in a Venn diagram form, and the visual will be available on ifebp.org podcast if you're interested. And it might actually be helpful for plan sponsors to create a similar visual like this, just to have ready for employees who ask what the differences are.
0: And just as an extra note to add, uh, you may be curious as to how often these types of accounts are used by employers and plan sponsors. And according to our 2018 employee benefits survey that will be released soon, 40% of All those we surveyed offer a health savings account. If you look just at the corporations and not include the public employers or multi-employer plans, the amount is higher at 59%. And then for flexible spending accounts, they are more common benefits. 61% of those we surveyed offer them, whereas 81% of corporations that we polled offer an FSA. Just to, you know, mix it all up even more, Um, (laughs) there are other types of accounts that can be used, like a health reimbursement arrangement, also called an HRA, and a medical savings account known as an MSA. But those are much less frequently
2: used, so I'm not going to go into them. There's not any more room on the diagram either, so we can't do it. All right, question number four from HR. I forgot to turn in my enrollment form. Now what? What should plan sponsors be prepared to tell these employees?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, I will state that I am not an attorney, nor do I play one on TV. (laughs) But that said, legally, employers are not required to do anything for employees who have missed their open enrollment deadline. Okay. So if some employees do miss the deadline, the employer has to decide whether to keep them in the previous year's benefit plan or allow their coverage to drop. Now, in some cases, the terms of a benefit plan may prohibit an employer or a plan sponsor from making exceptions for workers who don't make benefit selections within a certain time period, such as before the new plan year begins. So, for example, if the person doesn't enroll, they're just out of luck. The employer can't change that. But if the employer has the option, then their decision is really based on their goals and their population. So if a worker does not enroll and it doesn't have coverage from another source and is worried about getting coverage, the plan sponsor may want to be prepared to suggest other health coverage options for the year. For example, the public health insurance exchange or marketplace through ACA. Therefore, employers really, really are motivated to get everyone or almost everyone enrolled in the plans.
2: Kelly, as our resident ACA nerd enthusiast, how does open enrollment work with the current ACA mandates?
0: There is the ACA employer mandate requirement. That means an employer with 50 or more full-time workers has to pay a penalty if they don't offer adequate coverage to almost all of their full-time employees. And you have to prove that You as the employer or plan sponsor offered that coverage, and employers may require employees then to sign either an Acknowledgement of Benefits form or a Waiver of Coverage form to prove that they were offered coverage but just didn't choose to take it. And you may actually ask someone who misses the deadline to enroll to sign this to have proof that, yes, they were offered coverage, but they just missed the deadline. But another incentive for a plan sponsor to get strong enrollment, and this is not related necessarily to ACA, Mm -hmm. is if the plan is fully insured or uses an insurance company for its coverage. The employer will want strong enrollment numbers because to qualify to be a group plan, they may need is 75% of the population to be enrolled to get that advantage. Um, and most employers definitely want that. It gives them better in, insurance premium rates. So um, there are multiple factors and incentives to get good
2: enrollment numbers. Okay. No oh, that makes sense. Let's say you already knew all the answers to the questions our HR team has been receiving and you're like, that's great, but I already knew that. Well, keep listening because we have some quick tips to share after this break and maybe you'll learn something new. Healthcare benefits are
3: complex and your plan participants look to you for the answers. If you're on the front lines of open enrollment, the Certificate in Health Plan Navigation is the education you need to support them. Complete eight e-learning courses covering health literacy, healthcare care delivery models, the cost and quality of care, prescription drugs, and more. The courses are self-paced and accessible 24-7. To learn more and register, visit ifebp.org healthplannavigation.
2: And we're back with those tips we promised you.
1: So the first tip is recognizing the importance of health literacy amongst your participants. People generally think that they know more about benefits than they actually do. Otherwise, our organization would not exist. (laughs) Uh, It is estimated that 40% of employees don't fully understand the benefits options that are offered to them. Employees assume that they have enough knowledge to get by. when In actuality, they are leaving an average of $750 on the table due to misallocation of funds or not planning appropriately. So just make sure to start with basic terminology. What is in-network versus out-of-network? What is a copay versus deductible? What is an out-of-pocket maximum? People tend to avoid terminology that they do not understand. By avoiding options they don't understand, they may lose out on the best options for their situation. So keep out of the jargon game.
2: (laughs) So keeping the jargon out leads us right into tip number two, which is incorporating behavioral decision-making. So even taking a look at how open enrollment forms are designed can help employees make better decisions. If something is clean and free of jargon, like Justin was saying, it's less complicated. It eliminates unnecessary stress. Another tip is to use testimonials and examples. And I really like it when employers do this. I think our HR team have has done this before. So they'll provide a couple examples like employee, perhaps a single and healthy or employee B has a pre-existing condition with three children. So different plans will be appropriate for them, and and they'll be able to make the best decision you know, based on their their lifestyle at that time. Um, another way to incorporate behavioral decision making is, stress what can be gained or lost so what they can gain by taking the time to select the right insurance option and the potential financial loss if they don't take enough time and you might already be implementing these techniques without even knowing it if you want to learn more you can go back and listen to episode 14 where we talk much more in depth about behavioral decision making you might just pick up a few more pointers and this all rolls into the last tip
0: focused on benefits communication. The tip is communicate, communicate, communicate. So to do that effectively, you need to know your audience. A young millennial might look at benefits differently than an older millennial starting a family. Or different groups prefer different channels of communication. So you may need to offer multiple channels. Also, communicate early and often. Ideally, benefits communication should be continuous throughout the year. You might also want to keep a list of questions you get from participants this year, so you're better prepared to answer them when they come up in the future. And you could even consider creating a frequently asked questions list to distribute with the plan enrollment materials. That way you're proactive, not reactive. (laughs)
3: Exactly.
1: Sort of uh, piggybacking off that communication message, a lot of our research is showing that it's important to include spouses in your communication pieces.
2: And I think it's good, too, when organizations mail the enrollment information to the homes of their employees. For example, my husband, I'll intercept kind of all of our mail. I'll check it first and have that sitting out, and we can review it together, making sure we're making the best choice for both of us during this season. Good
3: idea. What we've talked about before is the importance of having champions in the workplace. This can be a manager or an executive, but it can also be someone who is just seen as a leader amongst their peers. So if you can get uh, those people on board and, and helping to carry your message, that's great. And also get communication directly to your managers to give out to the participants. So if the participants hear from their managers this might make more of an impression.
2: Julie, that's a great reminder. And I would like to give a listener shout out to a couple workplace champions of our own, which is our HR team, Tara, Diane, and Julie. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us for this episode. And thank you for all you do during open enrollment season and throughout the year. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And that should wrap up our episode for today as you, health plan sponsors, finalize your open enrollment materials, prepare for the onslaught of questions, and stock up on caffeine and chocolate to handle the extra stress of open enrollment. We hope these tips and FAQs are helpful to you. Best of
1: luck. We'd love to hear your feedback, benefit stories, or even topic suggestions. Drop us a line at podcast at ifebp.org. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to it on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you prefer, so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Today's program is copyrighted in 2018 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.